why don't you sit down? And um, in a second, we're going to give out some uh, flyers. And while they're giving, uh, sorry, some notes to, for today's talk. And while they're doing that, I'd like you to turn to your neighbour and I'd like you to just say to them, "What's the first thing that comes into your mind when you hear the word or think of the word revival? Revival." Okay, just turn to the person next to you. What comes into your mind first thing you hear that word revival? And while while you're doing that. These guys are going to pass around the uh, notes for this morning's talk. Okay. Okay, so come on, let's have, um, a few, let's have a few thoughts. Just shout out to me in a short phrase. What, what is it that comes into your mind when you hear the word revival? Changed lives. Good. Another one? Say again. Open heaven. Right. Okay, good. Any more? The Holy Spirit, good. Another couple? Somewhere, somewhere from over here. Hell crushed. H- hell crushed. Good. One more? Release. Release and repentance. Good. Excellent. All good answers. Very good. You passed the test. Well done. Um, when you look up the word revival in the dictionary, um, you get three de- possible definitions. Um, one is... An improvement in the condition or the strength or the fortunes of something. One is something becoming popular or active again. There'll probably be a Prince revival now. Now there has been on Facebook anyway since he died this week. But and also the one that I really want to focus on: a restoration to life, a restoration to life or restoration to consciousness. Today we're going to start a new series, a brand new series, you can stick the first slide up for me Chris, thank you, called Beyond Revival. And uh, really, I'm talking to the church here, if you are here and you're visiting and you're not usually part of this church or you're somebody who's exploring faith, um, you are more than welcome, you're more than welcome um, and it's great to have you here, I hope this talk helps you in some way. But I kind of want to uh, take today just to explore some things that we talk about in church quite a lot, but I'm not sure, I'm not sure I have ever really fully understood. And so we're going to take this series today and over the next few weeks just to really try and unpack what is it we mean when we use that word revival in a church context and what do we, or what are we going to do about that? Um, it's not a word that we find in the Bible specifically, but it is a concept that we find in the Bible throughout the Bible actually, the biblical concept of restoring things to life, of bringing things from death to life. We have sung this morning, I counted, I paid more attention to the worship this morning than usual because they asked me to play the piano with them, I counted three different songs where we sang, so in one we sang I believe in the resurrection, that we will rise again, we talked about Jesus rising to life, Um, we sang show your power, we sang... uh, Show your power. I don't know what the reference was on there. And we sang this. When you walk into the room, sickness starts to vanish and every hopeless situation ceases to exist and the dead begin to rise because there is resurrection life in all you do. We've worshipped God singing words from the Bible about people rising, rising from the dead. And that is the character and the nature of God. That God is about life. He's about life. In that sense, God is all about revival. 
And whether, whenever an individual chooses to give their life to Jesus Christ, we might use the word they are saved, they give their yes to Jesus, they become a Christian, all the different phrases. What's actually going on is a personal revival. When we come to God, we experience moving, moving from spiritual death to spiritual life. But the word revival is quite a churchy word. If you weren't in the church, I'm not sure if you'd understand what people were referring to. And actually, if I'm honest, I know quite a lot of people in the church who don't really know what they're referring to when they use the word revival. It's something I was asked in my interview for the job here. What's your understanding of the word revival? At that point, I said, well, I'm pretty unclear about what exactly I think. I've never actually felt comfortable, very comfortable, using the word because of... So this point, having done some real digging and research, I'm not sure exactly what I was referring to. I suspect the same is true of a number of us. Uh, or maybe it's just me, in which case you just go to sleep and I'll preach the sermon to myself. Um, it's for that reason that we want to have a good look at this over the next few weeks. I'm going to talk today about some of the definitions and the roots and the history of revival. Paul is going to pick up next week on um, some of the lessons we learn from revival and then we're going to take it on into what does this mean for us now. So we know that revival is some kind of move of God. We know it's something to do with the Holy Spirit moving. We know that it's usually, a time of revival is usually characterised by some kind of supernatural signs and wonders. Some people say that revival is something we can and should be preparing for, praying for, calling out to God for. Some people think we are currently living in a time of revival. There have definitely been a significant number of revivals in history, times when God has moved so powerfully and so dramatically that literally hundreds and thousands of people came to Jesus and communities were transformed. You might have heard, for example, of the Welsh Revival, which happened in Wales, funnily enough, in 1904. You might have heard of something in America called the Great Awakening, kind of linked with the preaching of um, Jonathan Edwards and First of the preachers, you might have heard of probably um, the most recent significant revival in, the, in this country, the Hebrides revival, which happened in the late 40s on the North Hebrides. You may have heard of those things. You may have heard of more recent outpourings of the Holy Spirit, significant ones that happened. Probably the most well-known in the last 20 years is what we would call the Toronto Blessing. Okay, an outpouring of God in a small little church in Toronto, Um, You may have also heard of things that have gone on in Pensacola in 1995, in Florida in 2008, and even in a small way in a little Welsh village called Cumbran in 2013. All of these were incredible times where the Holy Spirit was present in power and some amazing and miraculous things happened. People were saved, the church was encouraged. But having explored this and thought about it, I'm, I'm not sure for me personally that I'd be ready to call any of those recent ones revivals. I'm not sure I'd use that word. Let me quote to you someone called Alan Scott. He is um, the pastor of Causeway Coast Vineyard. I've talked about him before here. Over the past two or three years, they've seen about 3,000 people plus make decisions to follow Jesus on the streets of their city and in their church and among their various ministries. Alan Scott on stewarding and outpouring. He says, one of the questions that I'm asked most frequently is, is this revival? We don't think so. It's the entirely predictable outcome of relentlessly showing up in our community over years. Our town experienced revival before, back in 1859. 
It was amazing and it changed everything as tens of thousands of people responded. Crime was reduced, hope was restored and everything was different for a while. Revival is wonderful and we want it with all our hearts, Alan Scott says, but we want something more. And he goes on to say this, we want something more sustainable than revival, something our children can carry as a legacy. We want a story, a living story of how our generation witnessed God at work in everyday, ordinary and exceptional ways. Our story that transcends a moment in time and creates a movement of people in all times. A story that doesn't limit the kingdom of God to exceptional moments or to religious environments. But it unleashes holy hope through everyone on everything, everywhere. They're big words. But having looked into what revival really is, I'm more and more convinced that while I really, really, really want God to move, I tend to agree with Alan Scott. I don't simply want revival. We want to go much, much further than that. And that's why we've called this series Beyond Revival. And so today I want to do two things. I want to briefly explore four words or concepts that might help us just place revival in a bit of a context. And then I want to um, pick up or look at the passage of the Bible. And then I want to um, pick up on some of the distinctive features that come from that passage of the Bible and that have been noted in revivals in history. And the four words are on your sheet. I've written them down on your sheet because it's quite a lot of information and I thought you'd probably wouldn't remember it all unless I gave you it on a sheet. But the four words, and this comes from a talk by a guy called Trey Shepard. Um, I think he puts this beautifully. He says there's a, there's a process going on here and it starts in renewal and it moves on to revival, which leads to reformation, which leads to restoration. Let me just take a couple of minutes to unpack that. But before I do, let me tell you about my own experience of what I would call a renewal. You see, I've been going to church all my life. I went to a fairly traditional church. It was actually a Baptist church, but it doesn't really matter what kind of church it was. I went to a fairly traditional church as a kid, grew up, went to Sunday school, learned the Bible stories, all of that. When some people from a church called The Vineyard showed up in my church in 1986 and prayed, come Holy Spirit, everything changed. And we experienced things that we had never seen before. I mean, literally, people started to shake and laugh and cry and fall on the floor and shriek and do all sorts of crazy things. Now, I wasn't surprised when I saw this because I'd heard reports of this kind of thing happening. But it was, honestly, it was pretty mad. And it was certainly out of my experience and my comfort zone. And actually, for me, I was, uh, I, was, so I was 16 at the time, 17, I was just kind of growing up, and I was desperate, desperate for something dramatic to happen to me. I really wanted some kind of, you know, by the way, never fake it. I never faked it either, but I was desperate for something dramatic to happen to me. I just, you know, something, something. It never did. It never did, and it never has since. I've never, ever experienced the physical manifestations of the Holy Spirit in the way that many of you have, and I've seen lots of people do in my life, um, you know, in, in my life. I kind of spent a while wondering if that's because I didn't have enough faith or because I'd done something really bad. Um, I have done something really bad, but that, no, you know, we've all done something really bad, but that isn't the reason. <laughs> it personally put me off looking for any kind of Holy Spirit experience for a while. 
and to an extent probably made me a little bit in the cynical side or certainly wary, wondering, well, how much of this is what God's doing and how much of this is what people are making up, you know, or hyping up. And the truth is probably it was a mixture and that's okay. What I learned, though, is that it isn't about the manifestations of God. When you go to a meeting and the Holy Spirit's operating and people sometimes do slightly odd things, it isn't about what they're doing. It's not about that. It's what's going on in the heart. It's what's going on in the heart. And I was taught this thing. It's not how you go down. It's how you come up. And actually, what has changed in your life as a result of an experience of the Holy Spirit? What's the fruit? What's the difference? If there is no difference... What are you doing? You know? Now, I don't, as I said, still, I mean, I'm still open to anything, but I don't generally respond to God's presence in any kind of physical way for me. I always, when the Holy Spirit's around, feel an enormous sense of peace. And often I weep or cry. And that's wonderful. That's, that's a release in itself. But many people do really experience God's dramatic presence and power when they come to church, in this church, in other churches. When they experience a dramatic outpouring of the Holy Spirit in a church meeting or in a conference or something, I have heard the phrase, do you know what, revival is breaking out in the room. And I understand why people say that, but I don't think it's an accurate description. A much better word to use than revival is renewal. Why? I've got two reasons. Why is renewal a better word to use than revival for what happens in a Christian meeting or in a church? Well, partly it's historical. You know, in all of the documented revivals, and I'm going to show you this in a few minutes, a move of God started in the church, but it never finished there. It started in the church and very rapidly could not be contained. And so we hear reports and we read stories, I'm going to read some to you in a little while, of God's presence and power breaking out in the streets, in the communities, in the schools, in the workplaces. So revival describes what happens when God's presence is so evident in a community that everything changes and it doesn't finish there, but I'm getting ahead of myself. There's another reason why renewal is a better word to describe what God does in the church, and that's a theological reason. You see, if revival means bringing to life that which is dead, and you have chosen to give your life to Jesus already, you are not dead. We are alive. We are alive in Christ, whether we feel it, whether we believe it, We are alive in Jesus. And so renewal is just a much better word to use when Christians get connected to the power of God. When that process happens. Renewal is defined by the dictionary, by the way, as an instance of resuming something after an interruption. For example, the renewal of a friendship. So it's a much better word to describe a process where God's people, who are already fully alive in him, find their relationship with him is somehow quickened, is somehow resumed. And when we come to church, just like this morning, we connect with God through worship and teaching and ministry, and we often experience a sense of renewal. Our souls come alive again, and it's like our friendship with God is rekindled. Can you relate to what I'm saying? Yeah? And when God starts to move powerfully in a church community on a regular basis, you know, people start to get excited and faith grows, and sometimes that causes a stir. This is renewal. This is the people of God Getting on with or getting back to what they're supposed to do. That's what's supposed to happen. And we sometimes use the phrase, oh, God showed up in church today. In truth, that's utter rubbish. God doesn't show up in our church. God is here. Who are the ones that show up? We are. 
He's always here. And renewal is the first step on this journey. It's just the church being who we're supposed to be. And you know what? If we stop at renewal, then we create a consumer culture within the church that echoes and mirrors what we already see out in the world. If we stop at this point... And if we're not careful, we can spend our lives arguing about which kind of worship songs are the best songs for our community. Shall we sing the Vineyard songs? Shall we sing the Bethel songs or the Hillsong songs or Worship Central or IHOP? Or is it Rend? Irish folk music is the way to go. How are we best going to sing the songs that are going to make God come? God's already here. Uh. Trey Shepherd says this, Our community is not waiting for a better Christian song. Or a better Sunday show. The people of God should be writing destiny over their cities. That's what we're called to do. Renewal is the start of that process. And as I've already said, revival is what happens when you get that, when this breaks out of the church, when the power of God can no longer be contained within these four walls. And as I said, I'm going to look at some of the hallmarks of revival. But I just want to flag up before I do two other things which we're going to come to later in the series. Because it doesn't even stop. If people are revived, if people out in the cities and out in the streets and out in our communities are finding God and they are meeting God and they're coming to Jesus, then what are they revived for? So they can come to church and become consumers? No, absolutely not. They're revived for something that goes way beyond revival. What happens then? Reformation happens where things are quite literally reshaped or reformed. Reformation is what begins to happen when the power of God starts to affect not just the people, but the social and the economic and the political institutions and structures in a community. This is a pretty well-known story, but I'm going to say it anyway. In the Welsh revival of 1904, the consequence of so many people turning to Jesus was, not well, there were lots of consequences, but two of the significant ones were, A, that some of the pubs had to shut down, because they just weren't getting any business anymore, because people weren't drinking every night. And secondly, that they had to retrain the the mules or the donkeys that used to drag the coal in the pits. Why did they have to retrain the pit mules? Because up till that point, the pit mules had only ever responded to the swearing that the guys who were operating them would shout at them. And the guys stopped swearing. Their language completely changed when they met God. And the pit mules were kind of, I can imagine the mules looking at these people going, what are you talking about? I don't understand your commands. And so they had to retrain them. That's an example of a social or political or economic institutional structure changing. That's what reformation is. That's what comes after, beyond revival. And ultimately it comes to restoration. You know, our vision, I just put it up here, is that we, is our... Um, Here's our vision statement. I've shown you this before. Just look at the first line. We believe that God wants to rewrite the story of our city, restoring hope and bringing life to individuals and institutions. You see, God has kingdom dreams that he dreams over Winchester and over Eastleigh and over Chandler's Ford and over Basingstoke and over Romsey and over Southampton and over wherever it is that you live, work and hang out. He has kingdom dreams. He is not simply interested in saving us for heaven until we die. He wants to restore both us and this world to what it was always meant to be. We were never meant to know what it's like to know pain. Humans were never meant to know that. 
We were designed for paradise, to hang out with God and extend his kingdom. And the gospel message that we've banged on about every week for the last few months is that, we need to, we, that, is that God wants to restore us to what it is that we were meant to be. We need to explore and discover and find out what God's original design is for every individual and for every place. So what are our restoration dreams for our city? What are our dreams for our communities? We're going to look at that more over the next few weeks. But I want to turn to the book of Acts. If you've got a Bible, please turn with me to the, chap- the second chapter of Acts. Okay, Which is probably the first documented revival as we know about it. And this is the story of the day of Pentecost. We're not going to read it all, but we will read a significant chunk of it. We'll start at verse 1 of chapter 2 of Acts. When the day of Pentecost came, they, that's the disciples by the way, were all together in one place. Just let me remind you that what's happened just before this in chapter 1 is that um, Jesus has fulfilled his ministry on earth. He's died, he's come back to life. He spent some days appearing to his disciples and encouraging them. Um, And then we've had the ascension where he's basically given them a command he said, wait, go and pray and wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And I'm going now. And so this is where the story picks up. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, a sound like the blowing wind came from heaven. I got so excited, I just realised I missed all my <laughs> lovely slides out. Just let me show you this one thing. I was talking about restoration. When I looked at restoration in Google, this is what came up. It was all images that had been restored. I thought I'd show you that. That's what happens when God comes. Right, sorry, I'm jumping around. Forgive me. Acts 2. We'll do this again. So when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Galileans, by the way, were known for being a bit stupid and a bit northern. That's utterly amazing. Are they speaking Galileans? Then it, this is verse 8. Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, res, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, and all sorts of other places. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Verse 12. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some of them, however, made fun of them and said, Oh, they've had too much wine. They're just drunk. Verse 14, then Peter stood up with the other 11 and raised his voice. I've got a picture of this. I'm sure that's not exactly how it was, but somebody's somebody's good guess. Raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. They would not have had time to go to the pub yet. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. And he jumps out, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit now, because he he goes into quite a long sermon, where he basically quotes the Old Testament, 
And he says, look, this is what happened in the Old Testament. In verse 22, he starts to talk about Jesus. Listen to this, you guys. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked man, put him to death, nailing him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to hold, keep its hold on him. And again, he quotes a bunch of Old Testament stuff. Let's just jump ahead to uh, verse 38. And this is kind of Peter's sermon where he's kind of proving this Messiah that you read about in your scriptures, in Jewish scriptures, this Jesus, that was him. And he says, therefore, verse 36, sorry, therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is the first documented example of what we might call a revival. The power of God landed on Jesus' disciples, actually in, not in the church, but in an upper room. Okay, they've put a church there now. But um, the power of God landed on them. And the thing that they, and again, they, it couldn't be contained. It couldn't be contained in the room. And the next thing they did was they're out on the streets and they're preaching the gospel. They're preaching the gospel. People are experiencing supernatural signs and wonders. People are able to hear what they're saying in their own language. And 3,000 people that day respond to the call of God. And give their lives to Jesus out in the streets. There are about 10 distinctive features of a revival that I just want to outline. I'm not going to spend ages on any of them, but they're on your sheet there. And they actually come from a book by a guy called Arthur Wallace. Some of you will probably remember him or have heard him speak. Some of you are a little older. <laughs> um, this, this guy was a preacher, spent some of his time in Southampton. Um, Wrote this book in 19, about 60 years ago. Where are we, about 58? 48, 58 or 68. Anyway, he wrote this book. It's about 60 years old. He wrote this book called In the Day of Thy Power. And it's, it's, some people, some experts I know, and particularly Paul, who is an expert in all these things, tell me that this is the definitive book on revival. Anyway, he kind of looks at teaching on the Bible, and there's, there's some really good stuff in there. And I just want to pick up from a couple of his chapters these distinctive features of revival. There are 10 things, Wallace says, that go on in any genuine revival. Revival, a move of God that we be prepared to be called a revival. Let me say what they are. And you can trace them, most of them back to Acts 2 as well. You see, the day of Pentecost was a significant day for the Christian faith and for the worldwide churches. Sometimes it's called the church's birthday. For the disciples, this day would have started just like any of the previous few days, except that, so they were in the room together, they were waiting, they were praying. 
Having witnessed the risen Jesus ascend into heaven, they're just wondering what happens next. They're obeying instructions. They're preparing. And then there's this dramatic outpouring. There's this dramatic outpouring. The first thing that Wallace says is that a genuine revival is clearly stamped with the hallmark of divine sovereignty. God is in charge and he chooses the time and the place. You know, the day of Pentecost, we obviously think of Pentecost now as the day when the Holy Spirit fell, but the day of Pentecost was a Jewish festival. It was the second of the Jewish harvest festivals. It happens 50 days after the Passover festival. And so as such, it was a day when the city of Jerusalem would be full of pilgrims, God-fearing Jews from all over the world. That's what it says. Verse 5, there were many Jews from every nation, current in Jerusalem. You see, God knew what he was doing, waiting for that day. That was the day he chose. Similarly, in uh, the second week of November in 1904, there was a Welsh revival, an outpouring of the Spirit of God, and it happened simultaneously in the north and the south of the country. Nobody knows why it started that day, but God chose that day. So the first foundation of revival is that this is down to God. This is not something we can do or make happen ourselves. However, Wallace also says that there is another foundation, which is spiritual preparation or preparedness. He says there are two foundations of revival, the sovereignty of God and the preparedness of men and women. You see, it says in verse 1 of Acts chapter 2, the believers were all together in one place. They've been waiting, they've been praying. It says back in chapter 1 and verse 14 that they were all with one accord and devoted to prayer. The the, the spiritual preparation that was going on for this revival was that the disciples were waiting and praying. They were together, they were of one accord, they were in agreement. Was that a key factor? Was it just that, did did that make the climate ready and right? See, both of these foundations are key and we have to hold them both in tension. If we ignore the fact that spiritual preparation is important, then we can just kind of think, oh well, we can't make anything happen anyway. So, yeah, we can be indifferent to whatever. God will do whatever he wants. It's got nothing to do with us. On the other hand, if we ignore the fact that God's also divinely sovereign, we'll end up believing that we can make revival happen just like that. Oh, we just have to pray really hard and it'll just happen. Sing the right songs. God wants to pour out his blessing on his people, but I think he also wants them in relationship with him. And sometimes the conditions aren't right. Now, this isn't a very good analogy, but it's the best one I can think of. As a dad, I love to shower my children with love and blessings and gifts. I would just, there's nothing that makes me happier than buying my kids something that they really want. It's not always the best thing to do, parenting wise. But if I could, and I would, I would just give them whatever they wanted. I can't, but that's life. Sometimes, though, the conditions just aren't right for them to receive it. You know? The conditions aren't right. We're not really in the best kind of relationship, maybe, I don't know. It's it's, It's not there. It's not that they need to earn it. It's that the conditions aren't quite the best in our relationship. I I don't know. I don't know if that helps, but that's the best analogy I can think of. The Old Testament speaks of this throughout the Old Testament, actually. Um, Throughout the Old Testament, we read basically the stories of how Israel, God's people, go from decline to revival, decline to revival, decline to revival. And it's all to do with whether they're really following and obeying God or not. 
So there's a verse in Deuteronomy. He says, if you will indeed obey my commands, God says, to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give you the rain for your land in its season. So there's something going on by which there's a kind of covenant and a relationship going on. It's not that we earn revival. It's not that we can make it happen. It is still God's sovereign will and time and place. But there's something about our preparedness. You see, there were times and places when even Jesus couldn't minister or operate because of the climate that was going on around him. I really believe God wants to pour out his blessing on us as a church, as a city, as a nation. Steve Abley, who isn't here today and is leading Tent on the Green, you know, he really thinks that this is the whole team. This is the time. This is the time that God has ordained. I'm praying really hard that God will do everything that he wants to do. I'm sure that he will do some amazing things. And at the same time, I'm trying my hardest to be as prepared as I can. To make the conditions right. To make the conditions right. Another thing that Wallace talks about is being that revival is sudden and it's spontaneous. You see, in verse 2 of Acts, it says, When the Spirit came, it came suddenly. It came out of the blue. It came just like that. It's another reason to be prepared. It also says that all were amazed and marveled. In verse 7 and in verse 12, it talks about how they were absolutely amazed. When the Spirit came, it came from heaven. It wasn't forced. It wasn't suggested. It, wasn't, it didn't happen because of what they were doing. Revival can't be worked up. It can't be manipulated or manufactured. I do sometimes wonder every now and then when I hear just one or two preachers if that's what they're trying to do. You know, we, we can't do that. This, we can work ourselves up, I guess, but we can't work up God. So even though the spiritual conditions must be met or need to be met, they, it's not them that makes revival happen. Am, am I getting you? Are you getting me? Wallace says it was the windows of heaven that were opened, not the windows of the upper room. This is a great little quote. Let me read you this little thing from um, a missionary recounting what he had seen of the 1860 revival in South India wrote this. Man seems to have little part in it. The Spirit's work is all predominant, fulfilling that blessed, blessed event. See, any good father who wants to bless his kids knows the joy and beauty of spontaneity. God's a generous father who wants to bless his people. Let's move on. Some of these things are really important. When the Spirit comes, there is a God consciousness that happens. You know, what did it sound like? How did they know it was God? It said that there was a sound like the wind. And also there's something that they saw, tongues of fire. Everyone in the room was acutely aware of the presence of God. We read a similar kind of idea in the story of Saul on the road to Damascus when he meets Jesus. Suddenly he's made aware of this presence of God, by an, in this case by an audible voice. Go back to Pentecost, you know, Peter steps out and he preaches this message and the crowds around Jerusalem are hearing him and it says in verse 37, we read it, that everyone who heard was, can you remember what it says? Cut to the heart. Later on in verse 43, it describes the community of believers and says that awe came upon every soul. There is no doubt that when a move of God happens, people become aware of who God is. People become aware. When God manifests, we become aware of his power and his holiness. 
Let me read you this account by Jonathan Edwards, who was a famous revival preacher in the 1700s. It says this, the ruthless logic of Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, which, by the way, was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, preached in his usual plain and undemonstrative manner at Enfield, New England, in 1741, could never have produced the effect it did had not God been in the midst. When people went into the meeting, the appearance of the assembly was thoughtless and vain, People scarcely conducted themselves with common decency, recorded somebody called Turnbull, Trumbull. But he goes on to describe the effect of the sermon. The assembly appeared bowed with an awful conviction of their sin and danger. There was such a breathing of distress and weeping that the preacher was obliged to speak to the people and desire silence that he might be heard. Conant says many of the hearers were seen unconsciously holding themselves up against the pillars and the sides of the pews, although as though they already felt themselves sliding into the pit. There is no doubt that when revival happens, people become conscious of God. Let me read you one more example from uh, a school in Coleraine, County Antrim. Now, I referred to this already. Alan Scott referred to the the revival that happened in the north of Ireland. In Coleraine, County Antrim, at the local school, a a school teacher seeing one young boy clearly under the conviction of sin advised him to go home and call the Lord in private. He sent him home with an older boy, who had found peace the day before. After these two boys had traveled in prayer, that means worked in prayer for some time, the young boy was blessed with sacred peace and rejoicing. He returned to the school with a beaming face and reported to his teacher, oh, sir, I am so happy. I have the Lord Jesus in my heart. Strange words in cold times, natural words in a time of revival. But the attention of the whole class was arrested and one boy after another silently slipped out of the classroom and after a while the school teacher looked out to see boys on their knees throughout the playground, each one earnest in prayer. He turned to the two boys and asked them, do you think you can go and pray with these boys? They did so and kneeling down with one after another they began to implore the Lord to forgive their sins for the sake of him who had borne them all upon the cross. Silent grief soon turned into bitter cries. As these cries reached the girls' school, they too fell on their knees and wept in grief over their sins. There's a pattern going on here, isn't there? The cries of the boys and the girls at school reached passers-by in the adjoining streets and the conviction of sin came upon them. And they fell on their knees in the streets, pleading to the Lord for mercy. It seemed as if every available spot was filled with sinners seeking God. Pastors and men of prayer were sought and they spent the rest of the day in counselling and praying with these mourners. The sweetest of all toils that the earth witnesses when men labour and intercede for those who are broken hearted by the sight of their sins. Dinner was forgotten, tea was forgotten, and it was not till 11 o'clock at night that the school premises were freed from their unexpected guests. The overwhelming presence of God brings a deep conviction of sin. That's possibly, Wallace says, the most outstanding feature of revival. Other things happen, I'm going to have to rush through these. People are anointed for ministry. You know, the disciples in verse 4 were filled with the Holy Spirit. The encounter changed them. What a contrast between how they'd been a few days before, hiding in a locked room, scared and running away, and now here's Peter just standing up there and preaching it. You know, he was clothed with power from on high. And being filled or touched or anointed by God is always is always for then going out and serving him. It makes us bold and courageous to do the things he's calling us to do. There is always an outflow. 
There's a guy called Finney who's another revival preacher. Many times great numbers of persons in a community will be clothed with this power when the very atmosphere of the whole place seems to be charged with the life of God. Strangers coming into it and passing through the place will be instantly smitten with the conviction of sin and in many instances converted to Christ. So when revival happens, people get touched by God. They get touched by God for a reason. They then become vessels, is the word Wallace used. They become conduits. You know, we read from Joel, um, Peter, when he's preaching, he quotes the book of Joel. In the last days, the Spirit's going to be poured out. Sons and daughters are going to see visions and dream dreams. There's going to be spiritual manifestations. People started to speak in tongues and all kinds of gifts of the Spirit were going on. The message is authenticated by signs. Signs of the gospel. There's a divine magnetism. People are drawn towards God on the day of Pentecost. In a similar way, when revival happened, people come to God. Let me read you this account of the Lewis awakening on the island of Lewis. During the early days of the recent Lewis awakening, it was recent when this book was written, there was a remarkable movement in the village of Amol. There had been no response during the first few meetings, and the time of prayer was convened in a house at the close of an evening meeting. As one man was praying... All present became aware that prayer had not been heard and that the Spirit of God was being poured out. Sorry, I'm so sorry. Aware that prayer had been heard and that the Spirit of God was being poured out on the village. They left the house to discover that the villagers also were leaving their cottages and making their way as though drawn by some unseen force to one point in the village. There they congregated and waited. And when Mr. Duncan Campbell commenced to preach, The word took immediate effect and within a few days that small community had been swept by the Spirit of God and many souls had been truly converted to God. When revival happens, people are drawn to God. Drawn to God. There is evangelistic preaching. I probably don't need to say any more about that. It's fairly obvious. Just to say though, next week we just shared this thing at the tent on the green. Not next week, in two or three weeks' time. Steve has... uh, asked um, Steve Lee, who's a fantastic evangelist, and then the Bishop of Winchester to stand up in the midst of that. There is, it's not going to be like a service. It's, not, it's, just a worship, it's just a worship environment. But Steve has specifically asked these two guys to stand up and preach the gospel. And we're expecting that people will hear the gospel and they will meet Jesus. They will find God. And that's number nine. People give their lives to Jesus. 3,000 were added on that day. 3,000. Let's just think about if God wanted to bring 3,000 people to our church next week. Let's just think about how we'd cope with that. Let's just think about how we might manage that. The purpose of revival is to see people added to the kingdom of God. And lastly, new churches are established. We won't read it now, we've preached on this passage before, but the passage that comes straight after this in Acts is about the life, the community life of the new church. When a move of God happens, new churches get established, new communities spring up. Many, many well-known church movements have been established out of times of significant revival. The Methodist church came out of John and Charles Wesley's preaching and the Pentecostal church was established in the early 1900s out of the, the Azusa Street revival. There was something in the late 60s and early 70s in Southern California called the Jesus People or the Jesus Freaks. A load of hippies and surfers all got 
saved. And a church called Calvary Chapel and then another church called The Vineyard came out of that. In a Toronto church over in, um, over in Toronto has, um, has recently, over the last eight or nine years, have been specifically planting churches out of what God is doing there. I think that's really significant and important. All of these hallmarks of revival. I hope you can see the pattern here. That revival is not just what happens in the church. Revival is what happens in the community. And I just want to finish with two quotes and then we're going to share communion together. One is a short one by Wallace that I've put on your sheet. Revival must, of necessity, make an impact on the community. And this is one means by which we may distinguish it from the more usual operations of the Holy Spirit. We love the Holy Spirit in church. We love to meet with God in his presence here. But it doesn't stop here. It flows out. Let me read you one more, which is from Duncan Campbell, who is the preacher who preached in the Hebrides revival. This is about what he said. It says, let this account, says, let Duncan Campbell speak a little more on this. He is describing the revival as he witnessed it in the Western Isles of Scotland between 1949 and 1952. This is what Campbell says. In writing of the movement, I would like to first state what I mean by revival as witnessed in the Hebrides. I do not mean a time of religious entertainment with crowds gathering to enjoy an evening of bright gospel singing. I do not mean sensational or spectacular advertising. In a God-sent revival, you do not need to spend money on advertising. I do not mean high-pressure methods to get men into an inquiry room. In revival, every service is an inquiry room. The road and the hillside become sacred spots to when many of the winds of God blow. Revival is God going among his people and an awareness of God laying hold of the community. If you've ever heard him preach this, he's got a very broad Scottish accent. I find it very hard to read this without trying to do that, but it's, it, won't, it won't help you if I do. Here we see the difference, you can Google this, here we see the difference between a successful campaign and a revival. In the former, we may see many brought to a saving knowledge of the truth and the church or mission experience a time of quickening. But so far as the town or district is concerned, no real change is visible. The world goes on its way and the dance and picture shows are still crowded. But in the revival, the fear of God lays hold upon the community, moving men and women. Isn't that exciting? That's what I'm praying for. That's what I want to partner with God for. I want God to move not just in this church, though that's wonderful. I want him to move out of the church. You know, and impact all of our communities. That's what we're in this for. We're in, that's what we're in this thing for. If it stops here, I'm out. Honestly, I'm not interested. Why don't we stand together? Go on then. No, we ain't got time really. Just do that. Take a minute to do that. And then we'll just and we'll do a very quick communion prayer. It'll be fine. Go for it. Before we share communion together, I've, I've just been struck as Nigel um, has been speaking, and God is obviously here. And, I, and, and as we prepare to take communion, it's good to think about what he's saying to each of us individually and how to respond to that. And it may be that today you are here and you feel like those boys that he read about in the story. You know you need peace and you know you need forgiveness and you would just feel completely weighed down by the stuff that you've done wrong. 
And if that is you, the amazing truth today is that you can be free and you can know that peace as you say sorry to God and as you receive his forgiveness and as you start a new life with him. And so as you come to take communion, I just encourage you to make that your prayer. Jesus, meet me today. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you that you rose again to take the punishment for the stuff that I've done wrong. Come and help me start a new life with you. That's something you can do right here, right now. You don't have to wait for the tents on the green. So if that's you, then please do respond today. And then I'd love to talk to you afterwards and help you take a, the further steps on your journey. The next thing is that as we were listening, I just felt that God is here and he's putting a, a burden, a good burden on some of us to pray. Because as Nigel said, we need to partner with God and, and for ourselves and the conditions to be right. And if that's you, we would love to bless that on you today. And so in a moment, there'll be the chance to come to the front and just to receive that right burden from God to pray that he'll come and do all he wants to do with us. I also feel that God's here and there, is, um, he, there are people here who have big dreams about creativity, not just in the church, but in the marketplace, in media, in changing our communities. You've heard about Prince dying this week and Victoria Wood, and you've kind of gone, I want to make a difference like those people. And I want to do that because I want God's name to be glorified. And if that's you, we would love to pray for you this morning. And finally, God is here to touch and to heal. And over the past weeks, people have responded to words about having backs healed and seen real change in pain, reduction in pain and improvement in their conditions, particularly with backs. And if that's you, if you've got any other need for healing, we would love to pray for you too. So, so let's do it like this. We're going to take communion. And those of you who are helping with communion, would you let's just come down here. That would be really great. And uh, just if, you, if you're new to this church, how we take communion is uh, we have the bread and the wine. We just get the bread and we dip it in the wine. And one of them is a gluten-free bread station. We'll do that one over that side there. Um, Joe. You three at the back and two at the front. So we need some space. Great. Thank you. So there'll be five stations for communion. There'll be three at the back and two at the front. As I said, the gluten-free one will be down there. I'm just going to pray in a minute. Um, as Joe said, the Lord is doing a number of things and we would love you to respond. Now actually, symbolically, all of this is tied up in communion. The death to life is what we celebrate in communion. Jesus' death for us and life for us and how that brings us to life. So all of this is symbolised as we take communion. It might be that as you take communion this morning, God meets you really powerfully. Um, but after that, once you've taken communion, if you'd like to receive prayer, there's a big space here. And if you just want to kind of take some more time to respond and encounter God, we would love to pray for you. We'll remind you in a few minutes of all those things. They're just destroying the furniture over there. Don't worry about that. Why don't I just pray for us? Um, the Bible says that when Jesus took bread and wine, which is already part of the Passover festival, that he said... He basically said to his followers, look, take this. With the bread, you take it and you eat it and you say, this is my body. And every time you eat bread in my name, you remember what, my, what I did for you, my body broken on the cross. And then you take wine and he said, this is my blood that's been given for you. And we're doing this symbolically to help you get it into your heads, help us all get it into our heads. And just to remember physically and to reenact in some symbolic way what Jesus did for us. So, Father, we pray that this bread and this juice might be 
your body and your blood for us, that it might speak to us again of your incredible and immense sacrifice for our life. Thank you, Lord, that we are alive in you. We are alive in Jesus and called to do amazing things. And Lord, as we take communion now, Holy Spirit, come and quicken to us how it is that you want us to respond to this message today and how it is that you want us to respond to your calling to us today. Amen. Amen. Why don't you come and just go to one of the stations. And then once you're done with that, if you'd like to step forward and receive prayer, we would just, we've got a big space here and we would love to pray. Pray for those who, those who want to meet Jesus for the first time, those who are called to pray, those who are called to make a difference in the world. alongside them and ask them what they've come forward for and then please do pray if you're one of us part one of our small groups and we'd love to have you come and support and, and join with these guys at the front if you want to, if you'd like to respond either to come to know jesus for the first time because you have a need for healing because god's put a, just a sense in your heart that you sh- that you um he wants you to be praying more or you really want to see creativity released in the media in different ways, then do come forward and we'd love to pray with you.